You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, how we are grateful for your word that you have revealed yourself to us and we behold your righteousness and your law. We thank you that an even greater revelation is available to us in Jesus Christ and his person. And we pray that for having read and learned your law, that our love of Christ would increase. For the strengthening of your church, we pray, and for the salvation of, of sinners, we ask. And we pray for the anointing on the hearing and preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. I'm in the Ten Commandments, and... I'm, the Ten Commandments are the natural law of God. The Ten Commandments still apply. It is the moral code of reality. If you want to live within reality, the moral code of reality, then you live by the Ten Commandments is a guide for your life. The Ten Commandments, while they are a guide for your life, the Ten Commandments will not save you. They might, um, they, they teach you about the righteousness of God, but they will not save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. One of the things that the Ten Commandments do, while being a guide for life, is they teach you that you're a sinner. And so when you read the Ten Commandments and you learn about them, you learn how much of a sinner you are. And what that should do, it should make you run to Jesus Christ for salvation. So while the Ten Commandments are good, they are holy, they are righteous, they reveal the character of God, they reveal God's expectations for your life, they cannot save you. Only Christ can save you, and the Ten Commandments teach you that only Christ can save you. The Seventh Commandment is the one we've been on, I've parked in for a few weeks here. It is the commandment that you shall not commit adultery. 
And if the prohibition is true, you shall not commit adultery, it is true, you shall not commit adultery, then the opposite demand is true. You shall esteem marriage, you shall be intimate in marriage, you shall care for your own marriage and protect your marriage. All of these are true. I've spoken of the beauty of marriage. I've spoken of the purpose of marriage. And I still want to spend a couple more weeks on this because I think this is so important, the whole topic of marriage. There's so much confusion in our day and age, and marriage, as I've said, is so important, and the foundation of, of really society itself is marriage. And so I want to spend a day today, and then I'm going to spend some more time next week talking about other aspects of marriage, but today what I'm going to talk about is choosing a spouse or finding a spouse. For our ladies, finding a husband, um, gentlemen finding a wife. Now, of course, as you hear that topic, this is very applicational for the singles. So up until now, the application has been focused on the married people. Well, this is very applicational for the singles. And some of you might be tempted to check out and say, well, I'm not single. I don't need to pay any attention to this. Well, if you are married, you likely have children and, or grandchildren and who you'll need to help them think along these lines. And so you, there is some application for you in that. And furthermore, the principles for choosing a spouse are principles that apply to many aspects of life other than just choosing a spouse. So their principles are there for you. But yes, the application today is predominantly for those who are single, although I think it is much broader than that because a lot of you who are married have kids, grandkids, you're going to have to help them. Choose a spouse, and then beyond that, there's principles contained within, um, or the principles that I'm going to bring to you today don't only, don't only just contain principles of how to choose a spouse, but beyond that, there's application for all of life. And I tell you again that you need to run to Jesus Christ if you feel conviction for sin. Maybe you're going to come to this sermon today, and you're going to say, well, I'm, I've made some dumb decisions. I've gotten myself in a dumb relationship. Um, I don't know how I can get out of this. This is really silly of me. Um, what must I do? Well, what you must do is you must run to Jesus for mercy. Okay, some of you, that's going to include repenting of really bad decisions that you've made. And uh, some of you, it's going to mean getting out of relationships that you're in, not the married people. I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to the single people. Okay, there's probably single people in a room this large who are dating and it could very well be that you're in a relationship that is just a really stupid decision. And no matter how deep you're in that relationship, you ought to get out of it. And then beyond that, there's people in the room today that are in relationships. And they're in relationships uh, with very good and suitable matches. And for those of you who find yourself in such a situation, well, I exhort you to make haste and um, get married. Okay? This is something that is a very good thing, and I commend the institution of marriage to you. And if you have your mate, your, you know, whoever you're dating has proven to be a person worthy of your hand in marriage, then what are you waiting for, my friend? Just make it happen. But I'm going to give you an outline today, and here's my outline. I'm going to give you four points on choosing a spouse, on finding a spouse, Okay. This is, not, this is not like pickup artist stuff. That's not, this is not how to be a Riz master or something like that. 
Okay, the, this is, what I'm talking about today is some biblical theological principles. I'm sorry, guys. Some of you might have thought that's what I'm offering you, but it's not. I'm offering you theological and biblical principles on how to find a spouse. How to find a spouse. One, seek God's righteousness first. Two, evaluate character and compatibility. Three, submit to God's providence. Four, pray for wisdom. Give you some biblical stories, some biblical teachings, and, um, and a whole lot of application in here. Number one, seek God's righteousness first. Some who are single, as I, we talk about seeking God's righteousness first, I think this is the, a very important point, because some who are single, as we found out in the last few weeks, you've probably found out in your small groups, and I've found out through congregation, or conversations I've had with some of you, some who are single are very anxious about the future, full of anxiety, and the anxiety that they have for the future plagues them. Will God provide somebody? Will I ever get married? Who will it be? What will my future look like? Anxiety. Many that find themselves within the realm of being single, unmarried, haven't found somebody, while this describes you. Now, there's all kinds of other anxieties that people face in life, and there's application for those of you who face any type of anxiety, but I'm speaking about a specific type of anxiety this morning. Who will I marry? Will I ever get married? Will I ever find somebody? And these, of course, are normal questions to ask. In fact, they're very good questions to ask. And I think if you're single, it's normal and it's good to want to get married. But when the anxiety of whether you will get married becomes something that defines you and it's something that is consuming you, now we're moving into the realm of disobedience. It's good to want to find somebody. It's more important to be concerned about your own personal holiness and the righteousness of God. And for that, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 6. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, says this. Seek first, but seek first, rather. Notice the little button there. That's important as I talk about this passage, and I make a point here for the singles, or anyone that's dealing with anxiety for that matter. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Anxiety about the future, let me make this statement, anxiety about the future means you're not anxious about the right things. And this includes the anxiety about finding a spouse. If you are consumed with anxiety about finding a spouse or whether you will get married, that means you're not anxious about the right things. Just backtrack a little bit. It's a good thing to want to get married. Good. I highly recommend it if you find the right person. I believe in the institution, as you can tell. But if this is what is consuming you, then your mindset is off. There's something going on in your heart that's wrong. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He begins with the word, but. And the reason he's beginning with the word but is because he's contrasting it with what happens 
before. So he lists a whole bunch of things. He says, some people do this, some people do this, don't do this, don't do this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It begins with a but. What is he contrasting it with? Verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Goes into some examples. Verse 31, he says, therefore do not be anxious. Goes into some examples. Verse 32 says, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you will need them. And he's speaking of earthly things. Now, these aren't bad things that he's talking about. He's talking about clothing. He's talking about provision for the future. He's talking about your material needs. But he's saying this is what the Gentiles are anxious about. Yes, you should seek food, and you should seek clothing. You should seek to plan for the future. These are all biblical principles. But it's, it's, it's a pagan, godless thing to be obsessively anxious about these things. And what you ought rather to be thinking about is what he says in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You can trust him with all the material, earthly blessings that you might need or perceive that you need, but it is a pagan and unchristian thing to be worried about the future. Christians are occupied with other things. What are Christians concerned about? Primarily, they are consumed with the righteousness of God and his kingdom. So what am I telling you right now? I'm telling you to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And if something else, and I'm, my specific application today is finding a spouse, but I could add anything else. If you're, if you're consumed with anxiety about the future of the government, which some of you are, if you're consumed with anxiety about your own financial stability in the future, of your own health, these are the things that are consuming you above and beyond the righteousness of God and his kingdom, then there's a problem. Because Jesus is directing our attention away from the little details of life, and he's directing our attention to that which should be consuming us most, and it should be the work of the Lord where he's put us right now and our own state before him and our own righteousness before him. That's what you must be concerned about. Be concerned about God's kingdom and his righteousness. I fully believe... That God has created you with a mind, and your mind is designed to be occupied for things, with things. Your mind's not designed to be empty. It's designed to think and think and think and think and think and think and think. That's what your mind is designed for. That's the way God has designed your mind. But it's designed to be occupied with the right things the most important things. And in this case, Jesus is zeroing in with the consumption, which should be consuming your mind, is God's kingdom and God's righteousness. This should eclipse all other concerns in your life. More than anything else, your life must be consumed with God Almighty, your walk with him, and the advancement of his kingdom. Anxiety about the future, and in this case that I'm making the application to today, whether you'll get married, is pagan. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this, 
he said something similar. He said, very well, let us be anxious. The text isn't saying don't be anxious. It's talking about being anxious about the right things. But let our anxiety run in the right direction. You cannot be too careful or too energetic when God and righteousness are concerned. Consider that, my friends, brothers and sisters. The anxiety about the future is something that should take a backseat to the anxiety of your own walk with the Lord, your own righteousness, your own love of Christ, the advancement of the kingdom of God. You know, you're focusing on, you're being tempted to focus on $10 questions and God's telling you to be focusing on a million dollar questions. You're focused on things that last in, like a vapor, as the Bible says. But God is calling you to be focused on things that last forever. So if you're more anxious about who you will marry or whether you'll get married than you are about your own walk with God, your own standing before God, your own personal holiness, your own personal sanctification, then there's a problem. And this is, I'm calling for a mindset change today. Among the singles in the house, especially if this is what's consuming you. Every morning you wake up and this is the first thought on your mind and the last thought on your mind before you go to bed at night. And this is the only thought on your mind all day. There needs to be a mindset shift where your priorities are refocused. And your refocusing needs to be on God himself. And if you're seeking to be married and get married, good. That's good. I said that before. But seek God's righteousness first. Be sanctified. And part of being sanctified, by the way, is what? It's learning contentment and thankfulness in all situations. And so if you're discontent and griping and complaining and thankless in your state of singleness, the state of singleness is not your problem. The state of your heart is your problem. And you will take your griping and complaining and whininess and thanklessness into a marriage, and then your heart will learn in that marriage to dwell on something else that you're thankless about once you get married. Contentment is something, it is a, it is a mindset, it's a discipline, it's a, sta- it's, a, it's a position of the heart Thankfulness is a position of the heart, and the position of the heart of the Christian at all times in all circumstances is one of thanklessness or thankfulness and one of contentment and one of gratitude. So if you find yourself discontent, ungrateful, and thankless in one position in life, over one issue in life, that thing could be solved, but then you're just going to bring the thanklessness and discontentment into the next state. And once you find yourself in that state, you'll find something else to dwell on that's negative and you think you have a right to be discontent with. A righteous, or sorry, a person discontent in singleness may think marriage will solve that problem, but discontentment in your singleness will only make problems in your future marriage. You have to learn to be content in all things. Now, Just backtrack a bit. Does that mean that in your singleness you shouldn't pray? No, you should pray for a spouse. And 
This is something you should want. Just like you, know, you want to eat your breakfast the next day. These are normal things in life. And you want to find some clothing to wear. And you want to find a job. These are normal, everyday aspects of human life. But the question is, what is burning in your heart? And what ought to be burning in your heart in all situations is a desire to serve the Lord, a desire to walk with the Lord, and the peace that comes by knowing you stand as righteous in Jesus Christ. The great thing about being anxious about your own righteousness is that once you find Jesus Christ, you're not anxious about your own righteousness anymore, so you're not anxious about anything. Because you have a righteous standing before God. And he gives you that peace that passes all understanding. So while you're single, I've seen, I've seen people this that are discontent in singleness. And then what do they do? They say, well, I'm, I'm going to take this principle and apply it. Whatever happens. So they find a place to serve in the church. They commit to the church. They become members of the church. Right? They, they invest in, in their professional life. And they figure out how to excel in the career that they're in. And they just learn to contently operate within those various realms that they're in. And then eventually the Lord provides someone for them. Doesn't always happen, but I've seen that more, t- more times than not. Somebody comes to the point in his or her life where he or she says, I'm perfectly content where I am, perfectly satisfied with what the Lord's given me, and I'm going to make the best of it. And then the Lord gives that individual the desire of his or her heart when they've learned to be content. Doesn't always happen, but I've certainly seen that happen more times than one. So if you're single and you want to get married, this is the first step, is to learn contentment in your singleness. Serve the church, invest in your own life professionally, you know, take care of yourself. Maybe now is the time to, to join the gym and start working out and learning to discipline what you eat and don't eat. Right? This is a great time to get in shape when you're single. And that may help towards attracting a spouse at, you know, in one way or another. Uh, these are things that, that people pay attention to. Learn to be a dutiful son or daughter. Learn what it is to submit to being within the relationship that you're in within your own family. And be content in that. What is my role within my family as a son or a daughter? And how am I supposed to help my parents and help my siblings and love my parents and love my siblings and make the best of what God's given me in that family and learn to be content in that situation? And then when you start your own family, you'll learn to be content in that situation. Or how about, you know, maybe at this point in time when you're single, now build some wealth. The Bible talks about this a lot. The wisdom of earning money and storing up money and investing money and being charitable and generous with your money. And so the the state of singleness is an opportunity to learn to do this so that when the time comes when you, if God gives you a family, then you have a nest egg or you have a house or you have some property or you have some investments or you have a business. But don't, don't sit around and mope about your singleness when there's so many other things to do is what I'm trying to say. And certainly do pray for a spouse and certainly do look for one. But what is, what is the driving force of your life? The driving force of your life is to be content and thankful and make the best out of every situation as you submit to the Lord, trust him, and learn to walk with him with gratitude in whatever situation you're in. So there's the first principle. 
how to find a spouse. Well, I don't, I'm not as concerned about that as I'm concerned about your own walk with God. Two. Two. As you're seeking for a spouse, prioritize character and compatibility. As you're seeking a spouse, prioritize character and compatibility. <clears throat> I'll talk about this. I think character is way more than compatibility, but I do think compatibility, people make too much of it in, in our day and age, but I do think that there is an aspect that's true to it. There's, there is a real aspect to compatibility. But I'll talk about what I mean in a moment because I think it's overemphasized in some places. Prioritize character and compatibility. There are many people that are seeking a spouse and... Um, there are many aspects in seeking a spouse, but what should you look for? And I think the most important thing you should be looking for is character. So I'm going to look at a few scripture verses by way of warning. I, I spent a few weeks ago talking about the beauty of marriage and how wonderful of a thing marriage is, and I really believe that. That's been my experience. But it's also been my experience that for some people, marriage is the most painful aspect of their lives. And I've seen this many times over. And the Bible is not silent on that. The Bible says that. And I'll give you some Bible verses by way of warning, because I, I fear that there's some people here who are like, I just need to get married, and I'll take, I'll take whatever, whoever. I'm not even going to pay attention to character. Or then they find someone who has character deficiencies, and they get in their minds, I'm going to change him over time. No, you're not. You're marrying the person who you're marrying. And you're not going to change him or her. And so if you're going to enter into a marriage relationship with somebody, be sure that you've evaluated and you've taken the time to evaluate this individual's character. I'll speak to the guys first. Proverbs 14, verse 1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Listen, guys. You can find a wife who will build your family. She will be the warm center of love in your home. Or you can find a wife that will tear down and destroy your family. Both exist. And so don't walk into marriage thinking just because your parents had a decent marriage and you think you're going to have a decent marriage. Walk in knowing that there's different types of people in this world, and some women, there will be women out there who will build up your home, and there will be women out there who will absolutely destroy you. So seek after character. Similarly, Proverbs 21, verse 9 says, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Did you hear that? You're better off living on the roof of your house, in the corner where you could roll off, than with a woman who likes to fight. <laughs> and I know guys that will testify to that. Just give me a peaceful place on my roof. Get me away from this lady because she just wants to fight. Listen to this, and not just quarrelsome women. Listen to this. It is better to live in the desert, Proverbs 21, 19, in a desert land. You understand what a desert is, don't you? I've been to the desert. It's not a great place to live. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. 
Not just quarrelsome, but fretful. Did you hear my first point about learning contentment? Don't go for a woman who's discontent and constantly anxious about the future because she will gnaw away at your inner bones and you'd be better off living under the hot sun in the desert than having her slowly roast you for the rest of your life, which I promise you she will do. Proverbs 25, verse 24 says, it is better to live in the corner of the house stop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. That was the same verse that I read a few minutes ago or a few seconds ago. It's different verse, same wording. So when the Bible repeats something the same way two times, you know that it means it, right? And the Bible means that. God means that. He wants you to get the point here. Then this is a problem. Proverbs 25, or I'm sorry, 27, verse 15 to 16. Proverbs 27, 15 to 16. This is a good one. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. You're better off in some type of Chinese torture chamber where they're dripping water on your forehead the rest of your life. Quite literally. And, and this is the problem with guys. You know what they do? Well, I see her, boy, she looks good. I bet you, I bet you if I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm pretty good with my words. I bet you I can just work my way through this and control the situation, and I can learn how to control her bad attitude and her character flaws. Did you see what he says? That's like restraining the wind, guys. So the next time you single guys get it in your head that you're going to find a, a really attractive woman, but you're going you're to figure out how to just handle and manage her character flaws, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go outside on a windy day and try and stop the wind because you're going to have a better chance doing that than you are controlling the character flaws of a miserable wife. It's not going to happen. The Proverbs know what they talk about, and... I say this to guys because it's being addressed to guys in the text, and it's guys that are often taken by the beauty of a woman, and they start to, they fail to look at the character deficiencies and think they can restrain the wind. You do not want to do that. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So keep that in mind. You know the primary thing that you should be looking for in a wife? Does she fear the Lord? Does she fear the Lord? Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I have seen women absolutely wreck otherwise strong, confident, able men. So you have been warned. Prioritize character and compatibility, but I'll talk about compatibility in a moment. Now listen, ladies. There are men out there who will be very charming, but then they will beat you, and they're stronger than you. But you don't, listen to me. You don't have to, you don't have to submit to every man on the face of the earth. But the Bible says you need to submit to one man. That's your husband. Only one man. 
So be careful about the man you decide to submit to. Only one man. And the odds are that the guy that you marry is going to be bigger than you. He's going to be stronger than you. His voice is going to be more powerful than you. And there are guys who are absolute losers who will throw their weight around in the home and their families will walk on eggshells because they're terrified that the volcano is going to erupt at any moment. There are men out there who will squander your money. You will be sitting at home thinking you're living in the domestic dream and, and you're going to have your husband out there working, you think, and he's going to be squandering your money. He's irresponsible financially. And then you will bear the weight of the family finances. There are men who will loaf around and expect you to mother them because they were so mothered by their own mothers, they figure the, the job of women in the world is to simply cater to men all the time. And they'll just figure that your job is to pamper them and care for them and, and they don't have anything to contribute to the situations because their own mother spoiled them. There are men who have no foresight. There are men who are too immature. There are men who couldn't lead themselves out of a soaking wet paper bag, never mind lead a family. They're not ready. And don't think because you marry him he's going to be ready. And so I fear that sometimes I get to these sermons where I'm talking about the beauty and wonder of marriage and everyone wants to project the beauty and wonder of marriage on their situation and they say, oh, that could never be me. And then they, and then they say, well, I'll just find someone and yes, he's charming and yes, I like him and yes, she's pretty and yep, she goes to church. And then you didn't take the time to evaluate the character qualities and guess what? Now you'd rather be living in the desert or on the roof or in some Chinese torture chamber with water dripping on your forehead. Now, the Bible says, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, 1 Timothy 5, 22, do not lay hands on a new convert. Or be careful who you lay your hands on. Be careful who you lay your hands on. And what it's meaning is, be careful who you affirm to leadership. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Be careful who you're affirming in leadership in the church. Like on a new convert. So if somebody gets saved and they're really excited about themselves being saved, you want to take a lot of time before you let them preach. If they're new, you want to take a lot of time before they would even be considered to be appointed to a place of leadership in the church. You don't want to be quick with that. You've got to be tested with that, testing people with that. Some guys will do all they can you know, to convince you that they're godly guys, but when you, they get married, you figure out it was just a show. And you're very wise to take that same principle that is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, and apply it to choosing a spouse, young ladies. Because God has, it's not that the man has to be the leader of the home. No, God's just designed that he is. And we have all seen in the last few years what it is to, to live under a, a, an immature leader in government, haven't we? A man-child? What's it like to be governed by a bunch of man-childs? 
I, I tell you, it's a lot easier to be governed by a bunch of man-childs in Ottawa than it is to be governed by a man-child in your house. And so if you think it's bad to live under, you know, civil government that is corrupt and childish, what's it going to be like living under domestic government that's corrupt and childish? You think it's bad to live under church government that's corrupt and childish, what's it like living under domestic government that's corrupt and childish? So there's a principle in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Give a guy a chance to prove himself. I'd be very careful about a brand new convert who, someone who's not walked with the Lord for a long time and is just fresh out of the waters of baptism or something like that. I'm not saying there's, a, there's never exceptions to that. I'm taking a principle and I'm applying it though. Be careful. Be careful. Some guys will do all they can. And this is important for you to think about. Some guys will do all they can. Now, I'm trying to be pure with my girlfriend. We don't want to mess up in the realm of sexual purity with their girlfriends, but they're struggling with porn on the internet. So you know what that tells me? You don't want to be married to a guy who finds porn more irresistible than he finds you. Did you hear me? If you're dating a guy who's doing what he can to avoid impurity in your relationship, sexual impurity in your relationship, good on him. But if he's having a really hard time avoiding porn on the internet, what that tells me is he finds the porn more irresistible than he finds you. And there's going to be consequences for that likely when you get married. So wonderful. He wants to keep his hands off you, but why can't he keep his eyes off those women on the internet? A guy like that's not ready for marriage. You need to seek someone with character, and character is proven over time. Somebody once told me, truth and time go hand in hand. Let things play out. Let people be tested. Pray that God gives you insight into their character. If they haven't been in the community and around the church too long and haven't done, developed a reputation, then you ought to be careful. You've got to give people an opportunity to develop their own reputation. And if they haven't, well, then maybe you need to take some time. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with unbelievers? Now, we know what a yoke is, right? You live around here, you see these Mennonites going up and down the road with their horses and their buggies. And a yoke is what attaches the horse to the buggy. And if you get yokes together, you have two horses pulling the same buggy. If you have a really small horse and a really big horse that are yoked together, the big horse is going to start dragging the small horse and both horses are going to get hurt. And so the passage is calling for an equal yoke in marriage, not an unequal yoke. You want to harness yourself to somebody who is your equal. So that one's not being dragged and one's not doing the dragging. Otherwise, marriage becomes a real drag. So that means, of course, people have taken that and they've rightly said, that means you should at the very least marry a Christian. Well, yes, most definitely marry a Christian. 
I think so, but I think there's a principle in there that you can apply towards the principle of, account of, or of compatibility. There is certainly an aspect of that, and I think the dominant aspect is you must marry a Christian, but there ought to be an issue of accountability or a compatibility that is brought up. Some people wake too, too much time of this. How do you know you're compatible? Blah, blah, blah. And spend all the time talking about this. And, they, and they, it's just a total waste of time. But there is a principle that needs to be observed. Like, you should have similar theological convictions. And, and ladies, I think there's wisdom in marrying someone that's at least equally as intelligent as you. Or more intelligent. Like if a lady marries a guy that's less intelligent than her, it becomes very difficult for her. Because now she has to lead him, although he's supposed to be the leader. So you, you want to marry a guy that you, whose, whose mind you can admire. Or at least uh, be on the same level with, because there's a, there's a level of work that's going into the marriage. Into the vision of life, into what you're hoping to do with one another, and the family you're supposed to raise. You're the lady's the one that's got to follow him. And so you must marry someone who you can admire enough to follow, not just someone who you think's cute and makes you laugh. This is real life. When real life gets kicks in, the cute laughter is gonna get real old real quick. When there's bills that got to be paid, there's a mortgage that's got to be paid, there's diapers that got to be changed, there's, there's RSPs that got to be saved, there's investments that's got to be made, the stress of life kicks in, and when real life kicks in, the cuteness will get really old quick. John Angle James said something similar. He says, it is difficult for a sensible woman to submit to imbecility, but she should have considered this before uniting herself to him. So, hey, if you're, if, you, if you're now in the position where you realize you've done that, well, don't, don't add to your sins by not submitting to them. You're there now. But you ought to think through these things. You, you don't want to marry a guy who you've got to bring along. Does he know how to manage money as well or better than you? Does he know the Bible as well or better than you? Right? Is his mind is, is sharp are better than you. And I think these are, these, are, these are the issues of compatibility that I'm talking about here. And I think the guy should be asking the same question. But I think it's more pertinent for the ladies. And this is why you should be seeking counsel from others, especially your parents. I think kids sometimes whose parents have really good marriages, they automatically project the goodness of their parents' marriage onto their future marriage and just assume that's the way life is. So the, the girl says, oh, I just can't wait to be married. I can't wait to have kids. My life's going to be just as wonderful as my mom and dad's life. And she, protect, or she projects the goodness of her father on her future husband. And she imagines that just because her father has properly taken care of her family and and her mother, that the man that she marries, no matter who he is, as long as she likes him, he's going to properly take care of her. Well, you ought not do that. You should be seeking wisdom from your parents and asking them questions. And if your parents have a very good marriage, that's even more reason for you to wisely and slowly consider what they have to say. Slowly consider what they have to say, especially if they raise concerns. 
What types of books does he or she read? What jokes does he or she tell and laugh at? What are his, who are his friends? There's a good question. Who are the types of people that he hangs out with when he's not with you? Or that she hangs out with when she's not with you? Is your father excited about him? Not is your father willing to passively go along with him, but is he excited about him? Are your parents excited to have her in the family? What has he accomplished? Like we, this is an important consideration. You realize we all come out of the world screaming and naked, into the world screaming and naked. Every one of us starts off at the same place, screaming and naked in the delivery room. But by the age of 25 or 30, if you've accomplished nothing and you only have a bunch of debt, that ought to raise some flags. That, that ought to be a matter of concern. Because now all of a sudden, it's not just have you squandered time, but you've gotten yourself in a hole with your time. How well has this individual proven to steward his or her resources? Because this will affect things in the years ahead especially in these inflationary times. Everyone comes into the world naked and screaming in a delivery room. But not everybody ends up at the same place, and where they end up is largely dependent on how well they can steward the resources that God has given them and take advantage of the opportunities that the Lord has given them. This is what I mean when I say compatibility. I'm not just take it, talking about whether he or she has a good quiet time, has a profession of faith, is baptized. I'm talking about where is he or she going to be in, in another 15, 20 years. And the best way to judge where he or she is going to be in another 15 and 20 years is figure out what's happened over the last 5 to 10 years. And I think the best, if you have good parents, if you have good parents, I think the best way to discern this is simply seeking their advice. And if you don't, what's his or her reputation in the church? That ought to be quite telling in the community. And then I think quite often it's the father because the fathers, I think, is God's made them the leaders of the home and they feel the responsibility of headship. The father sees him and even her for where they will be in 10, 15 years, where mothers tend to sometimes get kind of taken by the romance. Oh, isn't it cute? We're going to have a wedding and this kind of stuff. Where dads tend to think long-term, typically. William Perkins, of course, said, Moses plainly teaches that the consent of the two parties is not sufficient unless they have free consent of their parents. Now, when parents are unreasonable, there are exceptions. But this is the rule. This is the norm. And because father is the head, and he must be the one that gives the bride away, it's not the mother and the father that give the bride away. It's the father that gives the bride away. It's the covenantal head. He, if he is a good dad, will feel an extra weight, especially as it pertains to his daughters. So there's some issues of character. There's some issues of compatibility. And I need to add one more thing as we talk about issues of character and compatibility very quickly because I ought not take anything for granted in these strange times in which we live. But that is, according to Leviticus chapter 18, verses 16 through or 6 through 17, you can't marry someone who is closely related to you. 
So I hate to break your heart, but that's off the table, okay? And these are something that you should think about. I don't know why. Well, in days gone by, we used to have, these things used to be common sense, but I guess they aren't anymore. So, number one, what have I talked about? Number one, I've talked about seek God's righteousness first. Number two, seek character and compatibility. Prioritize character and compatibility. Number three, trust in God's providence. Trust in God's providence. These next two points are a little quicker. Trust in God's providence. God providentially puts people in your life and has created you unique and your situation unique. Therefore, outside of the character and compatibility issues, what you need to do to find a spouse is simply look, who's, look for who's around you. Look who's in your path. Look, who's, look for who's in your path. And there's a, there's a scriptural principle that, is, that bears on this. It's from Proverbs chapter 12. Verse 11, and it says, Whoever works his, hand, his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Meaning you ought not be chasing things way out beyond that are in some type of dream world, but be looking for things and building things that are in front of you. And so sometimes people get these crazy ideas in their head about the type of person they're, not just that's out there waiting for them, but the type of person that will actually be interested in them. And you need to simply pay attention to what's in front of you. And some girls, you know, they'll, oh, there's, I know he's out there. He's six foot three. You know, he's 250 pounds, but only has a 30-inch waist. He drives a new truck, and he has the New Testament memorized. <laughs> Look, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of little ladies out there that are willing to ride in the passenger seat of his new truck. What makes you think he's going to pick you? And what makes you think he exists? Okay? So what I'm trying to say is you need to have a healthy dose of reality. If such person even exists, such person does have options. Are the guys, they see some woman perfectly, they, they, who they consider to be perfectly, flawlessly beautiful on Instagram. And they assume that they're going to find some woman that looks just like her, but has the virtue of a homeschool mom. Right? And somehow imagines that if she is out there, he's her only option. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say trust in the providence of God. Who has God put in front of you? Yes, physical traction is important. Of course it is. Nobody's saying it's not. But let's have realistic expectations in this Instagram world in which we live in. Let's have absolutely realistic expectations. Get your head of the, out of the clouds, survey the landscape, have a realistic view of not only who you're looking for, but who you are and who you actually think you can draw. And submit to God's providence. God has, look at God has created you a certain way. God has created other people certain ways. God has put people in your path. God has put you in the path of other people. So let all of these things, fig, you know, fall into place and trust the Lord. Trust the Lord in this. You know, have some self-awareness about who you are. And have some awareness about who's in your path and don't be staring up at the stars too much. 
So there's what I mean by trusting in God's providence. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he exalts you. When it talks about humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's submit to the providential situation that God has put you in. That's what it means. Okay, number four, finally. Finally, number four. Pray for wisdom. Once you've sought righteousness, once you've evaluated character, once you've trusted in God's providence, now what you need to do is you need to beg God for mercy. God knows things you don't know, and God, things, God knows things your parents don't know. God knows things your friends don't know. So you've got to rely on God. Now, there's two stories in the Bible. I'm not going to read them. I'm going to draw your attention to them. And you can write them down if you want to go read them later. One is in Genesis 24. The other one's in Genesis 29. Genesis 24 and Genesis 29. They're parallel. The first story in Genesis 24, Abraham sends a servant looking for a wife for Isaac. So Isaac, so Abraham's servant is looking for a wife for his son Isaac. Genesis 29, Jacob looks for a wife for himself. So first story, Abraham's servant is looking for a wife for Isaac. Second story, Jacob's looking for a wife for himself. Both stories are very similar. Both stories are very similar. Okay, the location is is harem, that's where they meet, okay? The, they meet at a well, meeting spots are at a well, and the families are related, the ladies are related to Laban. So they're very similar stories, they run parallel. The, the, they're noteworthy, the similarities of the stories. You've got two guys looking for a wife, both happen in harem, both meet at a well, and both encounter family members of Laban. Genesis chapter 24 and Genesis chapter 29. Abraham seeks a wife for Isaac, so he sends his servant along. Jacob seeks a wife for himself, so he goes looking. But there's some differences to the stories. While there are noteworthy parallels, there are noteworthy differences. The noteworthy differences are, is that the servant finds Rebecca for Isaac, and when Isaac meets Rebecca, it's love at first sight. It's a beautiful, romantic story. You can read it, and their eyes kind of capture each other. And they fall in love and they get married. Abraham's servant, who found the wife for Isaac, prays four times each time in the story, or each event in the story is preceded by Abraham's servant in prayer. So Abraham's servant prays four times. Each event in the story is preceded by Abraham's servant praying, and the story ends happy. Their eyes connect. But here's the difference. Jacob is tricked into marrying the wrong woman. He marries Leah, where he thought he was marrying Rachel. And Jacob, instead of praying four times before each event, demonstrates self-reliance, never prays, and things go from bad to worse for him as he arrogantly demonstrates a level of self-reliance by never bowing his knee to God, asking God to guide him in his journey to find a wife or asking God to give him wisdom in the process. Jacob had a lot to learn, he eventually did in the book of Genesis. So what's my point? My point is, is there's two stories, they're very much alike. Guys looking for wives, location is harem, they had to travel to find them, the meeting spot is out of well, the families are related to Laban, but then those stories part ways because one guy spends a lot of time in prayer and one guy just is self-reliant. And the guy that spends a lot of time in prayer is the guy that finds the wife for Isaac, whereby it's love at first sight, and then the guy that doesn't spend a lot of time in prayer but appears to be self-reliant ends up with the wrong woman on his wedding day. 
And you, you know how we wake up, he, he thought she was the right woman when he married her, but as soon as 12 hours later, he woke up beside the wrong woman. Now, some people, it takes six months, sometimes, sometimes it takes five years, but eventually they realize, I picked the wrong person. Shouldn't have happened. There's a difference between Jacob and Isaac, or Jacob and Abraham's servant. Jacob did not pray, and Abraham's servant did. As A.W. Pink said, it is not sufficient to have the approval of trusted friends and parents. Valuable and even needful as that generally is for our happiness. For though they are concerned for our welfare, yet their wisdom is not sufficiently far-reaching. The one who appointed the ordinance must needs be given the first place in it if we are to have his blessing on it. The story of Jacob when contrasted with the story of Abraham's servant, teaches us that we must be reliant on God. Walking in meekness, not full of self-reliance and self-confidence, but walking with brokenness and meekness before God, emptying ourselves, laying our dreams and desires at his feet, laying our self-confidence and stubbornness and pride at his feet, laying our fear at his feet, and trusting in the God who bought us by his very own blood. This should be the case for all of life, not just finding a mate, but all of life, all of life. And so I've given you four points on finding a spouse. One, seek God's righteousness first. Two, prioritize character and compatibility. Three, trust in God's providence. Four, pray for wisdom. Happy hunting. Let's have prayer. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love towards us. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. Please sanctify your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.